Hello. This is something slightly different. It's not a podcast from me. This is from a friend of mine who's recently started a new podcast about the history of fascism, specifically looking at the three main fascist dictators of the 20th century. It's a little more complicated than you really need for GCSE history. However, it's very, very useful for A-level history, and it's fascinating listening for anybody who's simply interested in history especially one of the dominant political forces of the 20th century. So this is the Faces of Fascism podcast. You can pick it up in Podbean and most of the other places that you can find your normal podcasts. Have a little listen to this introductory episode, and if you like it, make sure you subscribe. The following podcast contains attempts at the Italian, German and Spanish languages that some listeners may find distressing. of fascism, a podcast that will explore the personalities, politics and radicalisation of Western Europe's most notorious dictators. My name's Stephen Graham and this is episode one, The Brain of Mussolini. Our story begins in the Forlì region of northern Italy. It's a picturesque and rural sort of a place. It's mountainous, full of verdant woodland, ancient ruins and wild animals. In this region is a sleepy little town called Predapio, and near the Castle Gate House is a restaurant run by an elderly widow. She cooks and serves the customers herself, and she's rather typical of working-class women of the area. She's capable and dutiful, but shrewd, serious, and a bit sulky. She's not particularly remarkable, although her restaurant's signature dish is called Tagliatelli alla Camicia Nera. That's black shirt tagliatelle to you. Now this story is beginning where you might expect, but not necessarily when. It's the morning of the 25th of March 1966, and this old dear is about to receive an unusual package. It's a plain brown box, with compliments from the American Embassy. Inside are six test tubes of organic matter, brain tissue to be exact, And on the box, misspelled by the serviceman who wrote it, which is the height of rudeness, but what one comes to expect from Americans, is a single word. Mussolini. After Mussolini was summarily executed in 1945, his body was taken for autopsy. I mean, the cause of his death was pretty obvious. Seven bullets to the chest. But the purpose, really, was to find out if there was any truth to the rumour that had dogged him his entire life of his having syphilis which it turns out he didn't. Now, those fragments of his brain, which hadn't ended up splattered across a Milan pavement, were taken by the intelligence services in an attempt to isolate whatever pathogen, whatever synaptic deformity, that led him to invent fascism. Now, as this search had by now proven fruitless, these fragments were now free to join their owner in the family crypt. They're still there now, in fact, in a brown flask flanking Mussolini's body alongside a black shirt and a pair of his jackboots, providing the region with its premier tourist attraction, and also some lovely sweet merch money for the region, which, even though before and after the fascist era it was a socialist era, the money is income wherever it comes. But anyway, maybe these brain pokers had a point. It was as good a place to look as any, 
Mussolini's body in life had very much been the symbol of the movement in Italy, from the silhouette of his bald head on posters to his theatrical gesturing during his speeches to his displays of manliness as he stripped to the waist to partake in winter sports or farm labour for the cameras. Mussolini literally embodied fascism. In death, therefore, as his battered carcass swung from a half-built petrol station, the expiring of his physical being also symbolised the regime's final end. So therefore, it might not have been that much of a leap of logic for the military to figure out that the answer to how fascism came about, to what fascism even actually is, could have been found in the mangled remains of Mussolini's brain. What fascism was, you see, even after the war, was a complete mystery to everyone. Fascism had been founded as a movement on the 23rd of March 1919, and as early as 1944, George Orwell was already bemoaning the meaninglessness of the term. And a hundred years later, we're still no closer to deciphering it. In his essay, What is Fascism?, Orwell mentions having heard the term being applied to groups as diverse as conservatives, socialists, nationalists, Catholics, pro-war people, anti-war people, shopkeepers, farmers, women, homosexuals, dogs. I mean, he could well have been talking about the wind-blasted hellscape that is our political discourse today. Orwell surmised that it was an emotional word, best summed up as meaning cruel, unscrupulous, arrogant, anti-liberal. But how does that translate into a political philosophy? Where does that sit on the spectrum? Again, the movement's inventor gives us no clues at all. You know how there's always a Donald Trump tweet to contradict a statement he's just made? Well, Mussolini was pretty much the same, but... Of course, he had to work long form, so he contradicted himself in articles or opinion columns, journals and books. This was a man who'd started out as a hardcore socialist. He referred to his fellow travellers as tagliatelli socialists, floppy and soft, never to amount to anything. People who only talked of revolution, whereas he actually meant it. When he was eventually thrown out of the party, he proclaimed to the assembled members as he faced a barrage of coins and chairs, quote, You banish me? I banish you. You think you are getting rid of me, but I tell you that you are fooling yourselves. You hate me only because you still love me. Anyone who has told a boy on Tinder that they're not interested will probably have received reactions quite similar to that, I imagine. Mussolini didn't hold a single political conviction for the duration of his life. I mean, there's nothing wrong with changing one's mind. It'd be nice if more people in public life did that. But his politics was a patchwork of compromises, practicalities, moods and inclinations. One fascist MP even commented once that, quote, The problem with Mussolini is that he wants everybody's blessing and changes his coat ten times a day to get it. So it's strange to think that this is a political movement based on the idea of single-minded organisation, for which the term totalitarianism was coined. I mean, originally, as a derogatory term, totalitariano, by its opponents, but it was seized upon by Mussolini as it was as good a description as anything for his outlook. But then, once in government, the fascists failed to be totalitarian in any way, shape or form, just due to the realities of Italian life and society. Concessions had to be made to the monarchy, the church, the senate, the conservative establishment. 
the policies to fascistize the country were half-hearted and not policed. Even propaganda was pretty half-baked. They went to the trouble of distributing free radio sets to public buildings, but then they didn't bother to broadcast anything other than the usual radio output. Even after he'd been thrown out, Mussolini's politics were a real enigma. He was installed by the Nazis in a puppet state called the Italian Social Republic. Hitler had actually wanted to call it the Italian Fascist Republic, but this name was vetoed by Mussolini. As he set about what work he could do as president, he began to set out plans that what effectively would have become a welfare state. When his cabinet were surprised at this, he told them, quote, I was born a socialist and will die a socialist. He even envisioned what he called a socialist European Union against the Soviet threat. So, even though he was self-describing as a socialist, he was still very much aware of the dangers of Bolshevism. Now, this opens up another knotty question that always hangs around fascist theory, and we need to tackle it early. Is it left-wing or is it right-wing? The original founders of the movement, that sort of small group present at the meeting in 1919 were a ragtag bunch from all over the political spectrum. They were socialists, veterans, republicans, traditionalists, revolutionaries, futurists, anarchists. What possibly could have united them all, other than the fact that in truth fascism is a mashup of left and right? Mussolini said he was right-wing in order to win over those middle-class voters who were terrified of the Bolshevik threat. And the movement was very much in favour of private property. But the centrepiece of fascist economic policy, what was called the corporate state, was Soviet in its big state bureaucracy. There were fascist trade unions that controlled everything from agriculture to shipbuilding, from factory workers to academics. And there were leftist tendencies towards republicanism and anti-capitalism, but the aim of the corporate state was purely to generate wealth, not to redistribute it. Mussolini may have despised the lazy and decadent bourgeois, but the class war he envisaged wasn't the rise of the proletariat against the repressors. It was the triumph of those who produced and contributed over those who didn't. In the end, though, when we consider the left and right terms, these are terms that apply in a democracy. And the one constant in all iterations of fascism is the rejection of democracy. But again, here we have matters being confused further. There are other organisations in other countries that label themselves as fascist or that we think of as. And there's often wild differences in their beliefs. For example, some are very pro-church, well, Mussolini and the fascists were strongly anti-religion, well, at least until the realities of government forced a change of mind. Others, like Mussolini, were expansionist in their outlook, seeking conquest or empire, but then there were others in some countries who just wanted to preserve the existing order and institutions of state, albeit by violent means. In some countries, and Scotland was among them, there were even contradictions of the beliefs in fascist groups within the country. In the west coast of Scotland... The fascists there were staunchly anti-Catholic, for example, while those of the East Coast were fervently pro-Catholic. Although in the end, fascism never really took off in Scotland. Apart from anything else, the market for irrational religious bigotry, it was already a crowded one. But still, Rome did for a while make attempts to fund some of these other fascist organisations, but in the end it turned out that an international movement can't be made out of a, a nationalist ideal. But still, whatever the ins and outs of Mussolini's 
cobbled together on the fly ideology. We lump in the regimes of Germany and Spain with it. So what did they have in common other than their liking for uniforms? Well, National Socialism may have had some form of collectivism at its heart and envisioned the abolition of social classes, but it was based on ethno-nationalism that Mussolini ridiculed. And ultimately, it was all set-dressing for the racism of one charismatic nutjob who couldn't even get his closest associates to agree with him on their interpretation of that racism. Some felt it was anti-capitalist, some pseudo-scientific, others totally batshit mystic. Also, of course, in Germany, the corporate state didn't really have a place because once all those juicy wartime contracts came up, they were given to private companies. So again, can it really be counted as fascist? Franco, meanwhile, in Spain, well, he shared a mistrust of international organisations that Hitler and Mussolini had, particularly of communists and Freemasons. But politically, he was an ultra-conservative and traditionalist, and also a man so Catholic that he once promoted a saint to the rank of field marshal, and he kept her mummified hand in his bedchamber, even though this podcast does not kink shame. Also, once he achieved power, Franco holds the almost unique distinction among dictators of doing precisely nothing with it. He's pretty much the embodying of the banality of evil. Still, these were the leaders, and the closest fascism can normally get to a definitive description is that it is the cult surrounding the leader. So, who are they? Well, this podcast aims to find out. Napoleon said that to understand a man, one must look at the world when he was 20. But we're going to delve back a little bit further than that. To understand what made these tyrants, Mussolini, Hitler and Franco, who they were, we're going to go and look at the history and the politics of their countries, their home and family lives, their development as young men, their experiences of war and, of course, what they got up to with the ladies. Now, we'll start this over the next few episodes by examining the lives of the three dictators' fathers and the influence they had on their ghastly offspring, starting with the scandalous misadventures of Franco's father, the Lucian liberal Don Nicolas. Um, It'll be with you very soon, and I, I do hope you'll join me then. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments or suggestions for themes for future episodes... Do drop me a line on the Twitter, which is at Faces of Fascism. Also, as this is our first episode, we just want to say big special thanks to my friend Jamie for his assistance and uh, providing the graphics for this podcast. He can be followed on Twitter at at Jamie Stantonian. But anyway, until the next episode, bye for now.